This morning, my goal is to preach Jesus Christ as it has always been. And I pray that those who are following Christ and may be weighed down by guilt and shame, I pray that you'll find freedom as we, as we hear more about our Lord and Savior. I pray for, for those who may be disheartened and discouraged that you'll find hope in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And I pray that those who may be beaten up and, and, and mistreated will find fellowship with the one who has gone before us. And so last week, uh, we saw an example, if you recall last week, we saw an example of uh, the importance of reading God's Word within context in order to come to a right understanding of the meaning. And our passage today uh, can be an example of that as well, in order to understand it better. Uh, many of us know the story of the Good Samaritan, right? I mean, we... Uh, it's, a, it's an idiom in our, our common language, a good Samaritan. And it, we even have laws called the Good Samaritan Laws that protect people who, do, who act and try to help someone. And many of us uh, recognize that we ought to be like the Good Samaritan. We ought to love our neighbor as Christ says. We ought to love. And that's exactly true. I do not want us to hear that that isn't what we're supposed to do, but we ought to. If you're lacking love in a relationship you ought to be convicted from this and to, to ask God for forgiveness and to reconcile with that. So we indeed should hear that. But what I want to focus on today is the main point that Jesus is getting at within the context of the story of the Good Samaritan. Because that's not the only reason why he says this. But we're going to look at that within context. So if you have your Bibles, please open up to Luke chapter 10 if you have not already. Uh, just to, um, sometimes we get kind of, lo- uh, we, I can easily get lost. Like, okay, where are we in Luke? What is going on? Like, we've been here for a while. Where are we at? So just uh, I want to give a little reminder of where things are at, where Jesus is at in his life here on earth. So we are at the, the final months in Jesus' earthly ministry. Remember, he has set his face to Jerusalem. He's heading there slowly. He is going to different towns, and he continues to preach the truth of his message as he goes. Unfortunately, despite the Son of God preaching powerfully, there are still many, if not the majority, who refuse to humble themselves under Christ and to seek God for mercy. And we just saw in our passage last week where Jesus was thanking God the Father for God's sovereignty in salvation, and it's all by God's grace. And praise God, amen, it is all by God's grace, and we cannot boast in it. And then we come, and, and, and Luke says, Behold, so just after Jesus, Luke recording about the sovereignty of God and salvation, and it's all by grace, now you have this lawyer that's asking, What can I do to inherit eternal life? And so that is where we're at. Verse 25. That's kind of the the context we're flowing into. Verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And a lawyer in that day was a little different than it was today, where a lawyer um, in that time were experts in the law of God. And they would teach people about the law of God. And it's interesting that this is not the first time that we've been hearing of lawyers. If you recall, back in Luke chapter 7, 
while Jesus was talking about John the Baptist, we hear the response of the lawyers. Uh, when Jesus says this, if you remember in Luke chapter 7, he says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, referring to John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And Luke notes the response in the parentheses of how people respond to this. He writes, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And so with this background, we understand that this lawyer that's popping up in Luke 10, he's part of a group that has rejected God's purpose for themselves, which is to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And they have refused that. So remember this context, this background of going into this. Luke says, behold, a lawyer is asking Jesus this question. And the question he asks is a question that you may ponder a lot. And some of us have agonized over this question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Or what shall I do? How do I know if I'm going to heaven? How can I be sure that I'm going to heaven? In our culture... Uh, will typically, from my experience, answer that in two uh, different ways. One, our culture will say, there is no life after death. This is all there is. Just just do what you want to do. Uh, believe what you want to believe. Create the significance you want to create, whatever it is. Make sure you live passionately, but do what you want to do, and that's going to be it, because that's all there is. A second way our culture can answer this question is, everyone goes to heaven, right? I mean, God wouldn't be mean to someone nice. I mean, we're not as bad as Hitler, Stalin, Mao of China, or Pol Pot of Cambodia, who slaughtered millions. We can't be that bad. And so our culture tends to answer that question in these two different ways. Yet, uh, to some of us, this question of, well, how, what do I need to do in order to inherit life after death, that may seem distant from us, right? Uh, J.C. Ryle, I brought up his name before, He, uh, a church leader back in the 1800s, I believe. He wrote a book called Thoughts for Young Men. That's what it was called. And one of his points was that young men need to be specifically exhorted because they're young and they're vigorous and they have strength. And so their ten tendency is to believe that death is so far away or that it's so unreal. And so our J.C. Ryle is saying, no, that you need to be exhorted. Death could be right around the corner. We know of many who have died young. And you might be at a point in your life where old friends are dying just because of old age. And that, that question of, what must I do to, to know that I'm going to heaven, may be resonating in your minds, is always there, kind of below the surface. And thankfully... The lawyer comes to a perfect person, right? Jesus Christ, the one who's been proclaiming about heaven and hell for a long time. He talks about he uh, heaven a little bit and hell extremely, uh, a large amount. In fact, Jesus uses incredibly terrifying language when he refers to hell. Just to name a few, he says hell is a place of eternal torment, Luke 16, a place with unquenchable fire, Mark chapter 9. A place where the worm does not die, Mark chapter 9 again. A place where people will weep and gnash their teeth, Matthew 13. A place of outer darkness, Matthew 25. A place from which there is no routine, Luke, uh, return, Luke 16. And he, uh, he compares hell 
to a place called Gehenna in Matthew 10, which was a maggot-infested garbage dump outside of Jerusalem where they kept the fire burning to keep the stench down and to burn the garbage. That's what he compares hell to. And unfortunately, in complete disregard of Christ's example, a lot of times American Christianity will not talk about hell because it's, it's a hard and offensive topic, which indeed it is. It's not fun to talk about that at all, but it's reality. I'm sorry. It, it's reality. And, and we, if we love people, we will be talking about this. And so this man, this lawyer, comes to Jesus and asks an excellent question, but it was not a sincere question. If you see in this verse, Luke writes, the lawyer stood up to put him to the test. He's putting Jesus to the test. I mean, Jesus has already upset a ton of people. If you remember, he has just pronounced judgment on whole towns for rejecting him. He has caused disruption for the governing authorities being Herod. Uh, he has made himself equal with God, forgiven people of sin, which would be blasphemy if it wasn't true, but indeed it is true. He has compared the religious leaders of the day to bratty children. He has offended many with the truth he proclaims. And uh, maybe my personal favorite, he has gone to people who have literally gone to school to memorize large chunks of the Old Testament and has asked them and said to them, have you not read? And they would say a verse. And so a man coming from this group that Jesus has no, no doubt been offended comes to Jesus to put him to the test to try to catch him, to accuse him of something. And so he asks, teacher, how, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then this is Jesus' response. And, and I'm building this up. We've got, we got to understand the context here. He says, verse 26, he said to him, Jesus saying to the lawyer, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he, the lawyer, answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, Jesus to the lawyer, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. And that's the title I, I put to the sermon, if that matters to you. Do this and you will live. And so Jesus, uh, first notice, he directs the man to God's word. The answer to this question is not within yourself. Nope. Our culture will tell you that. It's, it's just going to look deep inside itself. That's, I'm sorry, that's trash. Uh, Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. So Jesus directs him to, to God's word, to the living, the word of the living God. And specifically, the, God directs the lawyer to the law of God. Why? Because the only way you and I will inherit eternal life is if we're perfectly righteous. If we have perfectly obeyed in the past, if we are perfectly obeying now, and we, have, we will perfectly obey in the future. That's the only way. The only way. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, or do, you not, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And so the law of God, which is a reflection of God's righteousness, his right character, it lays out what righteousness is. We'll see later in Luke chapter 18, someone else asked the same question to Jesus, the, the rich young ruler, if you recall, and Jesus does the same exact thing. He points him to the law of God. And so the lawyer responds back, if you see, and he responds great, as Jesus says. He re responds back with the, what's called the Shema of Deuteronomy 6, and he tags on there a quote from Le Leviticus 19.18. And so uh, a little background, the Shema is 
one, if not the main confession of faith for the Jews, uh, the, the Shema. In fact, uh, Orthodox Jews nowadays, they recite that at least twice a day. It's found in Deuteronomy 6, in verse 4. And it's called the Shema because the very first word is the, the Hebrew word for here. Uh, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And that's what he's, he's quoting there. And the Lord continues with the Shema, a loving God, and then he adds on the command to love others, which is a quote in the concise form for Leviticus 19. Please follow with me because this builds up to why Jesus refers to the parable of the Samaritan, or of the, the Good Samaritan. And so the, the lawyer answers back, Love God, love others. And that's the summary of the law. As we've seen, uh, Paul says a few times in the New Testament, love God summarizes the first tablet of the Ten Commandments, and love others summarizes the second tablet of the Ten Commandments. And then Jesus responds. He commends the answer. Yep, indeed, this is true. This is very true. And then he says, do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. That is, if you have and continue to perfectly love God, and if you have and continue to perfectly love others, you will have eternal life. You will go to heaven. As Paul says in Romans 2, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And maybe you're to the point, as, as you ought to be, as this lawyer ought to be, we are... This brings you low. It brings you broken, as it ought to do to, to me, to you, and to the lawyer, because we know we have not kept the law. We have not loved God perfectly. We have not uh, loved others perfectly. And we cannot do it. We haven't done it. We cannot do it now. And we will not be able to do it on our own in the future. As Paul writes in Romans 3, he says, As it is written, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so Jesus points the lawyer to the law of God. It does not, Jesus is not indicating Hey, you can keep the law and then you, you'll be saved. If you just keep the law, that's not what Jesus is doing. He's pointing the lawyer to the law to show him you cannot do this. You cannot do this. And so Jesus points the man to the law in order to point the man to himself. But the lawyer does not like this. Look at this. Look what Luke says. Verse 29, But he, being the lawyer desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And so the lawyer hears this impossible standard of the law of God. Hey, you want to, want to go to heaven? You want to be right with God? Then what is the law of God? The lawyer says, that, yep, this is what the law of God is. And Jesus says, yes, now do this and you will live. And the lawyer ought to have been like, I can't do this, nor have I done this. And it would have been in, in a complete shambles from this yet the man hears it and then seeks to justify himself meaning he sought to figure out how he could attain to this righteousness and is that not our natural reaction well i'm not as bad as jimmy down the road 
or uh, I'm not as bad as, as I said, Hitler or Stalin. I'm not that bad. And so the lawyer asked that question, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And it's hard not to take from this that the man's assuming, I've already got down on loving God. Now let's move to loving neighbor. Let's hit that box too. Let's check that off as well. And uh, a little more context. In Judaism at that time, the Jews considered only other Jews as neighbors. And some, might be the majority, only only, um, considered a few specific Jews to be their neighbor. And for sure, they would not have considered Gentiles, non-Jews, to be neighbors. And definitely not the Samaritans, uh, the half-Jews, half-Gentiles, would not have been considered um, neighbors. And so to avoid condemnation, to justify himself, the lawyer says, "Well, well, who's my neighbor? In a sense of let's lower the standard. Let's lower it down so I can attain it myself. And is that what we do? We, we lower the standard, right? We don't compare ourselves to God. We compare ourselves to Hitler, to Stalin, to Pol Pot, to Mao, to the FBI's most wanted list. That's who we compare ourselves to. And we come out looking pretty good. Or at least in front of people we look good. And so the lawyer is refusing to submit to the truth. He may be able to justify himself in front of men. Men do not know his heart. They do not know what he does at home by himself. And this is the exact opposite of how the lawyer ought to respond. So the lawyer sought to justify himself, and this is the setup for the parable of the Good Samaritan. A man who comes asking how to, to, to inherit eternal life, or if I can boil it down to our language, how do I go to heaven? And Jesus says, well, what does the law say? He says, well, this is what the law says. Jesus says, okay, do that perfectly, and you will live. And the man ought to see that he cannot do it, but yet he says to justify himself, well, who's my neighbor, Jesus? And then Jesus, in response to that, he tells the story. So let's jump into this. The story of the Good Samaritan, that context, Jesus replies, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road. Awesome! A priest is coming. And when, and when he came to that place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, okay, for sure the Levite would, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound, him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay when you come back. What a beautiful picture. And what a beautiful picture of who Bob was talking about who left to do exactly what this parable is. Many of us are familiar with this. So if, you, if I might, may be able to, let me give you a different rendition of the story um, just to try to give us, feel the impact of the story. A Minnesotan was going down from Red Lake to Solway. He was hauling his ice shack because he was just ice fishing and his truck broke down in the middle of the winter and he was going on a back road so he didn't think he'd see anyone being an older man his hood was up to signal uh for help but he didn't have a cell phone now by chance one of the elders of Soli bible chapel was driving by was going down that road he saw the older man 
but the elder passed by on the other side. So likewise, your mentor in the faith, whoever that is, is driving by, comes by, sees the older man with his, his hood up, signaling for, for help. But your mentor in the faith goes on the other way on the road and continues on. And then a convicted murderer comes by, sees the man, he stops, he has compassion. The convict gives this older man his cell phone to call a tow truck. And then he also gave him money to cover the tow truck and to cover the expenses of the repair. Uh, My attempt here is for us to feel the similar impact of what the story would have been. That the priest and Levite or an elder and a mentor uh, of the faith to you, experts in the law of God, they know what love requires. Yet they did not do anything. They did not obey what love requires in this situation. But this person who the lawyer despised, this Samaritan, he's the one that kept the law in showing mercy. And, and I said convicted murder, and I was trying to, to think of someone that we all might despise in some way. And I'm not sure who would that be for you. The person in your life that makes your blood boil, that you despise, that you hate. And you know what love requires, to be patient, to be kind, to not envy, to not boast, to not be proud, to not dishonor others, to not self-seek, to not be easily angered, to not keep record of wrongs, to not delight in evil but with the truth, to always protect, to always trust, to always hope, to always persevere, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13. And you see this person you hate, that person's the one who's loving. And if I can draw this even further... If that person you despise is the one on the side of the road, would you stop for them? Or would you, like the lawyer, justify yourself in why you're not stopping? They don't don't deserve for me to stop for them. So Jesus gives the story to the lawyer presenting this. Jesus could have very specifically said, hey, uh, in response to the question, who's my neighbor? He could have said, well, it's, it's anyone without discrimination, regardless of social class, regardless of uh, skin color, whatever, regardless of any of that. But instead, Jesus tells the story, and it's very similar, if you recall, of King David with the prophet Nathan. When King David is in sin with Bathsheba, when he, he murders Bathsheba's husband, and he's in sin. He's blinded by his sin, and so Nathan prophet comes. And Nathan prophet does not say, you are in sin, David. At first, he tells the story of a lamb to set this up. In the same way, Jesus, this lawyer who's blinded by his sin, he thinks he's perfectly loving God. He thinks he's perfectly loving others, and he comes to justify himself. So Jesus tells the story of this neighbor, and in the same way, he's exposing the, the, the lawyer's sin. He's trying to draw the, own, the, the response from the lawyer to show that he is in sin and that he would condemn himself by showing that he is in sin himself. And so Jesus tells this story, just like Nathan did, to draw this reply from a lawyer. And so Jesus uses this parable of a hated man that the lawyer hates to expose the lack of love that the lawyer has. So Jesus asks, at the end of the, the story, he says, verse 38, Which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And again, this exposes the lawyer's lack of love 
lack of righteousness, lack of doing right, that he does not like the Samaritan at all. And Jesus is loving and gracious to provide another opportunity for the lawyer to see his sin and to come to him for mercy. And then the response of the lawyer, verse 37, it was the one who showed him mercy, refusing to even use the word Samaritan. He said, what's well, the one that showed him mercy? You can imagine, very quietly, what was the one that showed him mercy? And then Jesus says to him, you go and do likewise. Exactly what he said before. Go, do this, and you will live. So Jesus, he has just given the lawyer a clear insight, both of the perfect standard of what the law requires for you to be right with God today. And then he gives him a clear insight in his own sin, his own inability to keep that law, to be right at all. And then he calls the man to go and do likewise, again, showing you cannot do this. And so although the lawyer wanted to justify himself, Jesus shows you cannot justify yourself. And so the the parable of the Good Samaritan is an indictment on all humanity. The only proper response for for the lawyer, for you, for me, is to acknowledge our sin. We cannot do this. We cannot follow God's law perfectly, and therefore we cannot live. We cannot do this on our own. And the one who mercy and forgiveness and grace comes through is right there with the man. And we have no indication if this man, the lawyer, actually responded at all. We have no indication of what happened at the end here. And just like this lawyer and anyone else, we, we will not turn from ourselves, our own devices, trying to ju- justify ourselves and turn to Christ. We will not do that unless we hear this bad news that you cannot do this. And so we see Jesus displaying this bad news. If you want to have eternal life, if you want to go to heaven, if you want to be right now okay with God, being right with God, have peace with God, be perfect. Follow God perfectly. But you cannot. You ought to, but you can't. But now the good news. Amen? Now the good news. Jesus has lived a perfect life. Perfectly obedient to the law of God. Perfectly righteous. And through faith we receive his righteousness. If you recall, Jesus was obedient in the wilderness when he was tempted by Satan. And if you recall, Israel was horrible in the wilderness for 40 years. If you recall, Jesus was obedient in the garden as he agonized, as he knew torture, crucifixion was coming. Yet he said, not my will, but your will to God the Father. And yet Adam and Eve, they were horrible in the garden. They failed horribly. Jesus lived a perfectly obedient, righteous, and holy life. And the faith that we receive is perfect righteousness because of Jesus Christ. Because of his obedience. And then God the Father sees that on our account and he justifies us for all eternity. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 5. For as by one man's disobedience being Adam... 
the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, Jesus Christ, the many would be made righteous. So God saves you not by ignoring the righteousness that he requires with the law. Not at all. It's not like he just overlooks sin as if, oh, that's no big deal. We'll just let him in. No. God gives justice and he punishes Jesus Christ for your sake, for my sake. And then he counts you righteous because you receive Jesus' righteousness through faith. Amen? Absolutely scandalous that that happens, that Jesus gets crucified and we walk free. As Stephen Nichols, he says this, and don't hear this wrong, please hear it. He says, we can actually say that we are saved by works. Not at all by our own works, but instead by Christ's works. We are saved by works, but not ours, by Jesus Christ. And so Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan to expose the lawyer's sin. And God may have you here this morning to give you another opportunity, just like Jesus gave the lawyer another opportunity to hear your sin and the, your need for Christ. And this may be the first time hearing this, or it might be the 20,000th time hearing this. But if you're not following Christ, the call is to acknowledge your sin, turn from yourself into Jesus Christ, where you will find mercy and grace. After the service, the elders will be here. We would love to talk with you more, to pray with you. And Christian, praise God. Praise God. That God right now sees you perfectly as if you obeyed for perfectly in the past, as if you're obeying perfectly right now, as if you've already lived a perfect life. Not because you have, or you are, or you will, but because of Jesus Christ and Him alone. You forever have peace with God. You forever will not be condemned ever because of Jesus Christ. And when you hear that discouraging voice, as we all do, reminding us of our failures, the shame and the guilt, that's the voice that's always there, you can say, that is true. But Jesus Christ has saved me, and because of Jesus, God sees me as perfect and righteous, and I'm declared righteous because of Jesus Christ. Amen? Uh, to end, I want to read a few verses from a song that has meant a lot to me. It's titled, Not for a Moment, by Meredith Andrews. And I apologize if I tear up. The song goes like this. You're reaching through the storm, walking on the water, even though I could not see, in the middle of it all, when I thought you were a thousand miles away, not for a moment did you forsake me. You were singing in the dark, whispering your promise, even when I could not hear, I was held in your arms, carried for a thousand miles to show, not for a moment did you forsake me. In every step, every breath, you are there, every tear, every cry, every prayer, in my hurt at my worst when my world falls down not for a moment will you forsake me even in the dark even when it's hard you will never leave me after all you are constant after all you are only good after all you are sovereign not for a moment will you forsake me and in christ christian god will never forsake you because it's never been about you it's about jesus christ amen pray with me father god thank you lord Lord, how we fall short, yet you see us in Christ. Lord, I just pray for that, that grace and that knowledge of truth to just be with us all day, all week, and Lord, in our whole lives. And may, Lord, God, may we just sit in absolute gratefulness of Jesus Christ. Amen.